Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! Phoebe is joining us this week, but we're not actually together. While in our last episode, we said that we were in the flat together, but I have since decided to come home to my parents to help out with my my granny. So now we are separated and self-isolated many miles from each other. So we are now navigating the murky waters of remote recording. And uh, I have to say, it's giving me a lot of anxiety. I hope this goes well. I hope it sounds okay. I do care a lot about sound quality when it comes to these things. And we just hope that everybody forgives us for any sound quality issues, basically. Yes, please forgive us if there are any issues. But we are still trying to power on, particularly because we're entering a really interesting liturgical time and it would be a shame to to miss that here on Risking Enchantment. And so we definitely want to be a kind of, I guess, a, a break from all of the bad news. But also I think we kind of need to acknowledge the fact that this is going to be a very different Holy Week for pretty much all of us. All of the public church services are closed here in Ireland. Pretty much everyone I know is in the same boat. I don't know anyone who's going to be able to actually attend any services in the coming week. It's going to be such a strange year for us. I've never not attended Easter services. And so we kind of were thinking about the losses that is. I know, Phoebe, you're intending on catching some concerts around this time. Yeah, I was really hoping to go to St. Matthew's Passion last week. One of the choirs here in Dublin were doing a performance of it in the Pro Cathedral. And it's the same group that I, we saw doing Handel's Messiah a couple of years ago. They're always really good. And that's been postponed. They said till May, but I expect it'll be longer at this stage. Yeah, I can't imagine a world gone back to normal by May, which is sort of crazy to think about. But, you know, between the sort of concerts and then there's just the liturgical aspect of it, we're kind of bereft of some of the the things that we might have gone out to do to mark and celebrate and honour the season. But there is a kind of flip side, which is that everyone is home. And I think in some ways people have taken a real initiative to try and make this a wholesome and productive time. And so people are seeking out to embrace the season. And there's a lot of online services and things that are offering free access to some of their concerts and their musical uh, recordings and whatnot. And also there tends to be a lot of those things available online at the best of times anyway. And I think people are really seeking them out, which is a really beautiful thing. I was reminded of when I spent a summer in Austria and we spent half of it in Vienna. And in the summer in in Vienna, all of the orchestras there go to Salzburg for the Salzburg Festival. And the Viennese are outraged at the idea that they might have to spend a couple of months without their proper orchestras. And so the mayor and the city council, I believe, put on enormous, like a giant screen and screen lots of operas and ballets and things like that for free because... It, it would just be inconceivable to spend any amount of time without access to these kind of great cultural monuments of music. And in some ways, we should be a bit more like that as well. And I think there are people who are really kind of approaching it that way. 
as we're entering this season of staying at home and um, not being able to go out into the world in the way that we used to. So I think we were thinking that this would be a really nice opportunity to talk about sacred music and the place of sacred music and particularly the sacred music of Holy Week and the great works of art that have come out around Holy Week in the in the world of music. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're also hoping to just talk a little bit about how you can pray with this at home and use some of that time to yeah, to actually enjoy what we don't always hear. I think it's also important to acknowledge that I think we're in different levels of busyness, that this is going to be a really stressful time for some people when they're like working like crazy and looking, trying to look after kids at the same time, whereas other people are maybe bereft of what they normally do and just stuck at home bored. So there'll be quite a big mixture of long things and short things. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really good to acknowledge that it's it's definitely an interesting season and it's not a one size fits all. But I guess we were just hoping to highlight the things that you could do in the time that you have in order to embrace this season. And I think music is one of the best ways because in some ways you can't replicate art in the same way or architecture or a lot of the things that might help us enter the season in churches. Obviously within churches, you also have the direct sacraments, so it's different, but even just in terms of physical spaces to help us enter into the season. Yeah, music through a speaker still isn't the same as live music, but it's a lot better than a painting on a screen. Yeah, exactly. So I think we were going to start with just like a little bit of background to sacred music, because I think in some ways, especially within some Catholic circles, it can be a little bit controversial. There are some people who only want Gregorian chant. There are some people who think that their, you know, 1960s hymnal is great and helps them experience the mass like there's a lot of controversy and so I think it would just be a little bit nice to set up some of the background to this I've been reading the spirit of the liturgy by the then Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger who is now Pope Emeritus Benedict the 16th give it to you by me yes I've got your inscription on the inside and our friend Matthias will be thrilled because he is advocating for everyone to read this book and I will say it is very interesting and also not overwhelmingly academic. I think it's in the world of kind of academic texts, it's quite readable. But Pope Benedict had a lot to say about music. And I think it's really beautiful because music was something of really high importance to him. So he writes about it really beautifully. But he kind of broke down some of the the biblical basis for music as part of the liturgy and pointed out how much the verb to sing is present in the Bible. And that it goes all the way back. I think he says the first mention of it is going into Exodus from Egypt and the the parting of the Red Sea. And at that point in Exodus, I think it's 15.1, it says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So he really like explains how it's always been a part. And then he goes on to quote from the book of the Apocalypse at the end of the Bible and says that there's a kind of mirroring here when John writes, the seer is given the vision of the conquerors standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's really interesting. I think we can tend to forget that there's so much music and like movement in the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. 
because we hear it read so much. I was listening to a podcast this morning on Gregorian chant, and he was talking about how they used to sing the gospel in all the readings, and that people would understand them through the music as well as through through the words themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't advocating for that just in Latin. He was also talking about places where they've done vernacular translations, but still sung it, which was cool. Yeah, that's a really cool thing. And that, like, Pope Benedict also pointed out here that we even have records of second century that singing was an integral part of the liturgy, which I think is is so cool to think about. And you're right that it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it, that it stays static. And in, and in a way, he also goes on to explain how at different times in history, like the church had to temper the way that music was being expressed in the liturgy, where it kind of too far one way or too far another way, but that it has been this part of our tradition of liturgy. One of the things that got me really excited recently was it got shared all over Twitter. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have heard it already. But NPR released quite a short little radio spot on an album that was released called The Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia by Capella Romana, which is on Spotify, and I would really recommend. And it talked about how through a mixture of like science and research, but also musicality, they were able to recreate the acoustic structure of the Hagia Sophia and apply that to a recording of people singing so that you could experience what it would be like to hear Christian song in that space, because obviously it then became a mosque. And I think it's now just a museum, but it's still within a a sort of Islamic context. And so we're not able to have Christian song in that space anymore. But to rediscover what that sounded like was so exciting. And it, it made me feel the kind of connection with the past and that this is something that has come through so many ages. So I would really recommend that album. I've been listening to it loads. It's really great. And there's actually, we're going to be talking about sort of Lenten and Holy Week songs. There are a lot of songs on there that are to do with the veneration of the cross. So I think it's really appropriate. I'll definitely link the interview because the interview makes the album so much more interesting. So I I thought that was amazing. That sounds really, really cool. But coming up to more modern day experiences of sacred music, I think there's a lot of confusion and a lot of, like I said, controversy and conflict over what music we play at mass and how we express music in our liturgies. And one of the best explorations of that that I've seen is the letter that Archbishop Sample wrote to his diocese in Portland about, it's called Sing to the Lord a New Song. Um, And he also has done an interview on the podcast that Phoebe you just mentioned where he also kind of talks his way through it so you can it's not that long a document but you can also kind of listen to it him speak through the introduction of it in that podcast as well that's the square notes podcast isn't it yeah that's right what he does is a really nice breakdown of what music is and isn't appropriate for mass and he doesn't do it in a way that kind of x music is bad because I don't like it or something like kind of as I guess subjective is that in some ways that it's not just about saying I like Gregorian chant or I like Mozart masses and I think they're the best but actually going into why certain things are appropriate and certain things aren't. It's a really interesting balanced approach on sacred music and talking about why we have music in the liturgy because I think we can kind of fall into either thinking that if it was written before the 20th century then it's good or mm-hmm. it must be modern and it must have guitars mm-hmm. like we can kind of you know those are kind of the two extremes that we can fall into but there is 
a lot of really beautiful modern music still being created. And as you're saying, music is something that we still grow with and still changes. But there's also a beautiful tradition of music that links us to the past. And I think it's important that we blend those. And also, he was talking about the cultural importance of stuff. So how it's appropriate to make something fitting to the culture that you're in, but that that music should still have a sacred element to it. And he talks about the idea that we can hear the sacred even in a different culture, that we hear something and know that it's for sacred purposes. It's not just popular entertainment. And that idea of entertainment is one he really goes into that because we, I think because we've become so used to listening to music for entertainment, like we can fill our ears with music all day, every day. Mm-hmm. But so then we start approaching the music of the liturgy in the same way, expecting it to entertain us, where he's, he makes the really compelling point that the purpose of the music, particularly in the liturgy, is to give glory to God. And that has to be intrinsic to it, that having music that just mentions God, but is maybe in a cultural entertainment setting, if you can't hear the sacredness of it, then maybe it's not appropriate. Yeah, and I think he does a really good job of explaining how that means that it's not just about saying that like Western 1800s composers are the only ones acceptable, that you can have all kinds of cultural traditions and they can be expressed musically in the liturgy and in mass. But the point is, is as Phoebe was saying, that we tend to be able to recognise sacred music when we hear it, even if it's not in our culture, even if it's not from our tradition. And that so it's not just about saying that, say, like, that all of a, a type of music from a particular culture is out, but it's about saying that there is a distinction between, even because a lot of cultures might have things that are are working songs, or it's not even just entertainment songs, but they'll have a function in their culture that is apart from just giving praise to God, and that it kind of doesn't matter how many times you use the word God in it. It doesn't necessarily make it, it can be in some ways a religious song without being a sacred song. And that that sacredness is being set aside and that we we know when we hear something sacred and when it is appropriate um, to, to, to the mass. And like you said, to giving glory to God. And he kind of breaks that down into sacredness beauty and universality and the universality there is not that everyone even likes it Uh, you, you can have traditions that are not your kind of cup of tea but that um they are universally acknowledged as being sacred yeah i think you also made a really interesting point about dividing between music for praise and worship or like for devotional purposes mm-hmm. and music that's fitting to the liturgy, mm-hmm. um, which I found quite difficult in some ways, but a really interesting idea when I got my head around it, because he was talking about how hymns were properly intended for the divine office mm-hmm. and that they had a devotional purpose within the divine office, which is why I guess you have some hymns that are written to popular tunes or you'd recognize the tune from elsewhere. So the idea that there is definitely a place for hymns, but because we've dropped the divine office mm-hmm. and tr- we're then trying to cram everything into mass. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time for us to re-embrace hymns, but 
priests don't necessarily have the capability to have hymns in mass at the moment. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Yeah, because I think when we hear that maybe we shouldn't be having hymns at mass, we hear it as a as a sort of a taking away that like for a lot of people they like hymns and so something that they love is being detracted or taken away and I guess the point is is that actually it's not saying that it's more that we should in some ways just embrace more prayer because there are places in prayer that hymns are really truly have their proper place but it's not necessarily exactly where we've been experiencing them and I think we were discussing Phoebe and I both follow the Magnificat which I believe is free for access at the moment while everyone's at home. So I would really encourage anyone who is looking for resources at this time to help them follow through Holy Week to look at getting the app of the the Magnificat so you can access it through your phone. I've been using it for about a year, the Magnificat online app, and it also has some really lovely recorded hymns on it, Mm. as well as giving you the morning and evening prayer which I think we're just about to talk about yeah yeah exactly which there's these amazing texts of hymns and I'm kind of jealous of Phoebe because she revealed to me yesterday that she seems to know the tunes to most of them I don't I come from a very typical Irish Catholic background which means that people know about four hymns and they we sing them all badly Um, yeah it's one of the things that I found really difficult coming into the Catholic Church one of the only things almost is the lack of hymns because in Ireland even the churches that sing hymns tend to sing them badly Mm. um, in the Catholic Church or if they're sung well they're usually sung by the choir and if you're someone like me who can't sing very well but loves to sing them if they're only sung by the choir and you don't have somebody next to you, like you, Rachel, singing them well beside you, you feel like, you're, oh, I just have to whisper them because otherwise I'll set everything off note and nobody else is singing. <laughs> um, so you lose that kind of communal sense of sung prayer mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you're not singing anything. And obviously in a lot of masses, we don't sing parts of the mass either. So yeah, that's been an interesting learning curve. Whereas I would have grown up with a church that was quite a small congregation, but my mother was the organist and she put a lot of effort into choosing a variety of hymns, but still hymns that people knew or should play through them beforehand so people were familiar with the tune. And then there were just a few good singers in the church who would sing them out and everybody else could sing along. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of sense of communal prayer is really important. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I think I've mentioned this before but my usual mass growing up was actually a chapel in an old folks home so (laughs) it certainly wasn't the sort of fully rounded choir or anything like that and mainly as my dad likes to chide at me I used to just sing a solo essentially for the whole (laughs) mass Um, because the priest would insist that somebody sing and I was the only one there who would and or could But yeah, the Magnificat has these great hymns with great texts. Like I tend to, when I, if I'm reading a book I like, I pull out quotes that I like and try to keep them. And I actually end up pulling out so many quotes from these hymns in the Magnificat because I just find them really moving. They're beautiful poetry, even when you don't know the songs. And so there are these rich, amazing hymns that are in our tradition, but we're also maybe not putting them in the right place when we do them at Mass. 
And even when we do, like I said, with the <laughs> with the typical Irish church, there can be a real reticence to um, to sing properly. I was thinking, I was just remembering there's a section, we've talked about this talk before, but there's a really great talk on YouTube called Why Hollywood Matters by Barbara Nicolosi. And she's talking about why Catholics should try to excel in the world of art and beauty and, and culture. And one of the main examples she uses is saying how she felt like personally attacked by how bad the music was in a particular mass and how she tried to rectify that by bringing in people who would play and and, and really trying to invest in the music. And it kind of came back to, well, we don't want the kind of ordinary Joe Soaps of our congregation to feel put out by having proper musicians play. And obviously as Catholics and as Christians, we want to not unnecessarily cause pain to people in terms of their their efforts that they're trying to bring to their service. And we should respect the fact that people are trying to be generous. But there is an element of, I know it's funny because in the spirit of the liturgy, one of the ways that Pope Benedict points out that we went wrong was when masses became kind of too operatic because it became sort of like a vanity because you had these virtuosos singing these amazing pieces and they were sort of all about the singer and not about the liturgy. But, you know, in some ways that can be equally true for people who can't really sing. There's a part of it that can become more about how I feel about how I contribute. And I think any of us can fall into that trap and, and we need to be aware of it. But she she quoted Pope John Paul II and said that the liturgy is the corporate act of beauty we make together and present to God and that we should take pride in presenting something that is at least attempting to reach for the glory of God. Obviously, we as humans can't reach that far, but that we should want to do better. And I think it's really interesting that one of the kind of strongest quotes that I've read in this regards is actually from Pope Francis, who his message has consistently been about taking it out of its ivory tower and bringing it into the people. So I definitely don't think he's talking about isolating people by having elitism in terms of the music, but he does say, Certainly, the meeting with modernity and the introduction of speech in the liturgy has given rise to many issues of language, form and musical genre. At times, a certain mediocrity and superficiality and banality have prevailed to the detriment of the beauty and intensity of liturgical celebrations. For this reason, the various key figures in this sphere, musicians, composers, conductors and choristers of the Scole Cantorum, with liturgical coordinators, can make a precious contribution to the renewal, especially in qualitative terms, of sacred music and liturgical chant. In order to foster this development, an appropriate musical formation must be promoted, even of those who are preparing to become priests. I just think that's so funny that he's kind of daring to talk about the mediocrity of a lot of our liturgies. Yeah, I think it's so important. I love the bit he says about priests, actually, because mm -hmm. for me, one of the most beautiful moments in the Mass is when the priest is seeing the Eucharistic consecration. And obviously before the lockdown, I've been really lucky to hear that done in St. Saviour's occasionally. That was kind of one of the first times I'd come to it and heard the full thing just sung by one person. And it, obviously it's a big undertaking for a priest and most priests can't do it. But for those who can, it's such a wonderful gift to the congregation. Yeah, absolutely. And that I think as we're in Holy Week, it's kind of the ultimate week of reaching for this 
accomplishment to music that there's an opportunity to sort of go all out and it's funny because I was thinking I think we think of Christmas music and we did our episode of Christmas music and everyone loves carols and they love singing carols and there's not necessarily there are some Easter hymns and I think we're just going to come to we'll come to those a little bit later but there's not really the same iconic set of like sing-along songs for this season but what there is is really intense powerful musical masterpieces in a way that actually Christmas in some ways doesn't have especially from a, a, a liturgical and religious point of view and so this is the time to really think about how to reach for that kind of musical grandeur in what we're doing in our in our liturgies and that it, it does matter like I think it's not just about showing off to ourselves or even attempting to show off to God if that were even possible but that this is worth investing in I'm going to quote Pope Benedict again like I said he just has such a love for music and it's so evident and when he was receiving an honorary doctorate in music he said at this point I would like to express a thought that has gripped me increasingly all the more so in as much as the different cultures and religions enter into relation among themselves present in the ambit of different cultures and religions is great literature great architecture great painting and great sculptures and everywhere there is also music. And yet in no other cultural ambit is there much of equal grandeur to that born in the ambit of the Christian faith. From Palestrina to Bach to Handel, up to Mozart, Beethoven and Bruckner, Western music is something unique, which has no equal in other cultures. And this, it seems to me, should make us think. And then he even says it more explicitly. This was in a different speech he gave, but he said, the encounter with the beautiful can become the wound of the arrow that strikes the heart and in this way opens our eyes so that from this experience we take the criteria for judgment and can correctly evaluate the arguments. For me, an unforgettable experience was the Bach concert that Leonard Bernstein conducted in Munich after the sudden death of Karl Richter. I was sitting next to the Lutheran Bishop Hanselman when the last note of one of the great Thomas Cantor cantatas triumphantly faded away, we looked at each other spontaneously and right then we said, anyone who has heard this knows that the faith is true. The music had such an extraordinary force of reality that we realised, no longer by deduction, but by the impact on our hearts, that it could not have originated from nothingness, but could only have come through the power of the truth that became real in the composer's inspiration. That's beautiful. I think it's also, it's something that always strikes me when I'm listening to a performance of one of these, mm -hmm. that you hear it and go, how can you sing this and not believe it? Mm -hmm. And obviously some people do, and but there's, there'll also be in that choir people who do believe it and hold it strongly. I had a beautiful moment when I went to see the Messiah before Christmas. Mm -hmm we were walking out afterwards and just in front of us, we spotted a group of nuns that we hadn't seen. And we're like, oh, there's actually been like religious present at this. And we really got that sense of us almost being a congregation that had prayed it together. Mm -hmm. It may not have been everyone, but there was a gathering of the faithful there Yeah, to give glory to God. That's so beautiful. And I think, so Phoebe and I kind of did a bit of, intense classical music listening <laughs> in preparation for this. So, it was so intense. <laughs> and so we're pulling out some of our favourites or maybe even new favourite pieces that kind of relate to Holy Week that we think are particularly special and help us enter the season. 
So I, I know Palm Sunday is over by the time this is coming out because we're recording this on the Saturday. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to try and get a, this up as quickly as possible to give other people time to listen to this in, in a less frantic way than we did. <laughs> but I know, Phoebe, you had one, one or two pieces for Palm Sunday that you wanted to highlight. Yeah, it was just one. And it was one that you had found, Rachel. It's called um, Les Ramus or um, The Palms. It's by Foray. Mm-hmm. So the original version is in French, and that's really beautiful, obviously. But there's also an English translation, and you can get it with the words. So if you want a hymn for Pam Sunday that you can maybe sing along with and get that real sense of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, like it's got, it's, it's almost a marching tune. Mm-hmm. It's got that kind of sense of movement to it. You can really put yourself in Jerusalem with the crowds waving and the glory of that. Mm. So yeah, I just think that's a lovely one. And it's only short, so not yeah. a big commitment. I I was listening to Foray's Requiem Mass, which obviously it's just it's a Requiem Mass. It's not specific to a service in Holy Week, but it has that mournful reflective quality that you tend to be looking for at this time. And uh I loved I love his Requiem Mass. I think Foray has that real sort of Tolkien Elven feel to a lot of his music. So I really enjoyed his Requiem Mass. And then I think we kind of moved on to a lot of the Lamentations. So obviously you've got the Tenebrae services throughout Holy Week. And I got to go to two of them. I think I discussed this this time last year on the podcast that I'd never been to a Tenebrae service before. But if you haven't been to a Tenebrae service, it's essentially a series of sung psalms and, and canticles. And it's done as the church is entering into darkness. And there's a, a series of candles that get extinguished. And then at the end, the final candle is sort of brought behind a screen or behind a door and you make a whole lot of noise as if it's the the earthquake that happens when Jesus dies and and then you kind of leave the church in silence so it's it's quite a long service of music and then you have this sort of clatter and, and fright at the end and then you sort of leave in silence so it's a really moving liturgical experience that for me anyway but like I said I, I only started going a year ago so I think it's interesting I was looking up all of these lamentations which say that they're part of tenebrae services but I've never actually experienced them to know exactly how they fit in with the service but they are beautiful obviously Pope Benedict has already mentioned Palestrina there's a reason that Palestrina is known as the best and the greatest and his lamentations are beautiful and ethereal. And the other one I listened to was Thomas Tallis, T-A-L-L-I-S. And he's an English composer. And I believe he was, yeah, I think he was the one who, he remained Catholic during the Reformation in England and yet was able to continue working with Protestants and producing music for them at that time. So he's quite an interesting composer and his work is beautiful. I was just going to add in that the Magnificat should have a Tenebrae at Home Mm. version. I had one last year and maybe that's something that particularly if you're at home with your family, that you can do and maybe bring in a couple of these pieces. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I think we're also going to say, just before people get too overwhelmed with names, (laughs) that we're going to make a list of these so you don't have to suddenly grab a pen and try and write everything down. Yeah, I listen to these in a mixture of YouTube and Spotify. So hopefully you'll be able to access as many as possible. The final one I was going to mention in the Tenebrae services is 
kind of the most famous, it's the Miserere by Allegri, which is an incredibly famous piece of music that is kind of often cited as sort of, you know, the proof of divine inspiration. This is one of those jaw-dropping pieces that takes everyone by surprise. And it was sung in the, the Sistine Chapel during Tenebrae services. And actually, they forbade people from getting copies of the music. And so it had this sort of mysterious allure about it where everyone wanted to find out what it sounded like. And then, of course, 14-year-old Mozart rocked on up to one of them and pretty much wrote it down from ear. I think he, he had to come back for one more listen to get the final like last little bits, which is classic Mozart. That's such an incredible story. <laughs> it's it's a really beautiful like music of parts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got kind of this like voice above the rest of them, and yeah, it's really cool. And so yeah, you definitely can't talk about Hollywood music without mentioning the Miserere, which I think brings us to Holy Thursday specifically. Yeah, one of the ones for Holy Thursday, which I heard sung last year, was Thomas Aquinas's Pane Lingua. I think it's pronounced. It's written for the Feast of Corpus Christi, but because it's so focused on Christ in the Eucharist, it's really appropriate for Holy Thursday as well. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one that most people be very familiar with the tune because the last two verses, the Tantum Ergo, mm-hmm. are what we sing in adoration and benediction quite often. But there's a full version of that, which is about five verses and it's so beautiful. I would really encourage you to maybe read the English lyric translation or follow along with that. But obviously the Latin chant of it is just stunning. And there's also something in it being a familiar tune. And if you get the chanted one, it's something you can actually sing along with. So maybe if you're trying to listen to Holy Thursday liturgy yourself, mm-hmm. that's one that you could get up the words and sing along with and he also had like there's a couple of other pieces for the same feast like the um adoramus te mm-hmm. or no adoramus te devote but like other ones focused on the eucharist which are also very appropriate for holy thursday yeah definitely and then moving on from that is kind of i guess what you might call the big one which is good friday <laughs> which kind of has i think the most amount of different types of of musical settings and and devotions in it in preparation for this podcast. And because Phoebe had been planning on going to Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, Phoebe took St. Matthew's Passion and I took St. John's Passion to kind of listen through in preparation. Yeah, I finished two hours ago. (laughs) Yeah, they're long. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that made me laugh was because obviously Bach wrote them for Lutheran services. They're not Catholic services. But I think it's the St. John's Passion anyway, was written as a sort of interlude before and I think after the sermon, which talk about needing to keep your game up. Like imagine if you had to have a sermon worth having in the middle of Bach's St. John's Passion. Like, this is what I mean about bringing your A-game to the liturgy. Like, it raises everyone up, because that makes me laugh so much. Yeah, I don't know about St. John's Passion, but I assume it was the same in that St. Matthew's Passion had, like, obviously it was telling you the narrative according to the Gospel of Matthew, but it would then break into reflections Mm -hmm. on what was happening. So you're practically getting a sermon along the way. 
Yes. Yeah, so the structure of both passions is, I think most Catholics would be fairly familiar with it in that it in some ways quite resembles how we do the passion gospel in our church services in that there's a narrator and there's a particular person who takes the role of Jesus and other people who take the various roles, Pontius Pilate and Peter and, and all of those. And then against the background of this, there's essentially two choirs um, and they sing they sing some of the crowd parts that we would know from our liturgies, but then they also give a textual reflections as you're going along, which is really beautiful and lends a kind of deeper insight into it. I know in the St. John's Passion that I was listening to, I found it really moving when it has the section where Pontius Pilate writes King of the Jews on the piece of paper and puts it on the cross. And they you have that section where the they're saying like, do not say he was king of the Jews, say this man said, I am king of the Jews. And the choir then sings a section where they talk about wanting to have the name and the cross of Jesus engraved on their hearts. And I just thought that that was such a beautiful reflection in the middle of all of that. And of course, Bach is so masterful in what he's doing. Like he, there's so many little things I know I was reading for St. Matthew's passion to create an almost like halo effect around the vocal lines of Jesus, that it was only strings that would accompany his parts, except at the moment when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, he takes the strings away and it's only just the organ playing some bare chords. And you're just like, there's such a richness of liturgical and theological understanding that goes into these masses. Yeah, the instrumental input into St. Matthew's Passion is enormous. You've got these arias where in my one it was one of the choir who were also like acting as the tenor and alto parts would come forward and sing a part that brings you into it. I'll just read you the words from one of them because they're really pretty. This is when quite appropriate for Holy Thursday actually when you were reflecting on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and there's then this reflection of the, the translation is, Willingly I shall bring myself to accept the cross and cup. I drink as my Saviour did, for his mouth, which flows with milk and honey, has made the cause and bitter taste of suffering become sweet through first drinking it himself. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful way of kind of bringing us into it. Mm-hmm. The, Obviously, you're there with the crowd, like on Palm Sunday, when we all chant, crucify him. Mm-hmm. But you're also there as the faithful soul mm-hmm. and engaging with it by walking with Christ through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To kind of emphasize those, at one point, you've got some really interesting like flute solos or cello solos that give you a break from the words almost mm-hmm. and a little bit of time to reflect. Were you listening to it with the English translation beside you or on the screen? Yeah. or? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was doing it with choir on the screen and then the words on my phone. So it gave me like the German Mm -hmm. words that they were singing and then the English translation underneath. It's an easy one to follow as well, which is important. Yeah. And it's just such an experience. I have a quote here from a critic called Paul Hume who says, if you're looking for that single work in music, which most incomparably combines the elements of man's humanity with God's divinity, then there can be no question. The St. Matthew Passion by Bach has not even a near rival. Within its pages are contained musical and dramatic beauties unique in their power to convey the story of our Lord's passion and death. Yeah. 
it may be almost three hours, but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, I will also say that it is, it's in two parts. The first part is about an hour. And if you want to split that up, you could listen to that part on Holy Thursday evening and then go into the second part on Friday morning. And again, you could split that um, into two different hours if you wanted to. Um, I know by the end of the second hour, I got pretty tired sitting down and <laughs> had to take a break. <laughs> not quite sure how the Lutherans managed. <laughs> but it's nice because it's not the only devotion that you can do through music on, on Good Friday. Um, I particularly liked Haydn has an oratorio, which is the seven last words of Christ, which essentially has an aria on each of those last kind of phrases of Christ on the cross, which I thought was really beautiful. And then quite famously, there's the, the Stabat Mater, which is the, the Sorrowful Mother by Vivaldi, which is obviously quite a famous prayer and goes through the experience of Our, Our Lady and her experience of being with Christ during his passion and death. The Magnificat Online also has a beautiful recording of a chanted version of the Stabat Mater. Mm. But in that vein of things, actually, I think the piece that blew me away the most, and it's not particularly long, so I would really recommend anyone to listen to this one, is The Lament of the Mother of God by John Taverner. It's incredible. Yeah, it's one of those ones with very kind of soaring and like quite piercing choir, but beautiful and sorrowful. And the words are so moving. Yeah, it kind of took my breath away. I don't think I'd ever heard it before. I, I know I listened to the St. John's Passion for this recording, but I've definitely listened to most, if not all of the St. Matthew's Passion before as well. And I love those. And there's obviously plenty of great music here. But if I could recommend one, that Lament of the Mother of God, it kind of it genuinely moved me to tears and I'm not usually that easily moved to tears by music. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe look at the words, especially if you're someone like me who finds it hard to follow song lyrics, mm -hmm. look at the words during or before to help you meditate on it without going, oh, what's she saying there? Yeah, the YouTube recording that I was listening to had the words in the description box below, which really helped. Very handy. But yeah, I just thought that was so beautiful. Obviously, going into Holy Saturday, we don't have specific ones, but mainly because those lamentations that we mentioned earlier, some of them are for Thursday, some of them are for Friday, some of them are for Saturday. They kind of across a couple of different days. So you can definitely return to those lamentations on Holy Saturday. Yeah, I just had a couple of other hymns for Good Friday. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. So one of them is actually taken from St. Matthew's Passion, but it's, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, the ref refrain through St. Matthew's Passion, like the tune is. And it took me a while to recognize it. I was like, I know that. I've heard that recently. And then they actually came to where those lyrics are. I was like, oh, of course. So yeah, that's just a beautiful hymn. And it's if, like, if you don't have time to listen to St. Matthew's Passion, just listen to that hymn. And then again, in the vein of hymn singing, there's a hymn version of the Stabat Matter in English at the cross her station keeping, which is just a really beautiful reflection. It's not as beautiful as the Stabat Matter Vivaldi, but it's the English. And lastly, in terms of reflective prayer, I think the Teze song, Jesus Remember Me. Yeah, I find that really moving. There's a there's another one which is, I think, is called Behold the Wood of the Cross. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, some of those even really simple ones. Like, I just find Jesus Remember Me 
genuinely really moving at any of the Good Friday services that I've been at. Absolutely. Which, like I said, if you're going to Holy Saturday, then the Lamentations are kind of where it is. I don't like, I was going to say um, skipping over Holy Saturday, but I don't like when people skip over Holy Saturday. I've just written an article which will be up on Holy Saturday about why Holy Saturday is incredibly meaningful and not just an empty day, even though it, it's, I guess it's emptiness is meaningful, which is one of those great Christian paradoxes. <laughs> so don't forget about Holy Saturday. Do listen to the Lamentations. Do enter into the spirit of that emptiness or even like choose to spend time in silence but have it as like an active choice on holy saturday because i think holy saturday is just such a an important part of the easter story but then going into easter for easter sunday one of the best pieces that we listened to for this was berlioz's resurrect seat which is part of his his solemn mass but it just the most I love Berlioz anyway I'm kind of I I love the romantic composers I love the drama and the almost kind of on the nose-ness of them but uh, the resurrection is exactly that really triumphant bang you're there feeling and I love it and we were saying we're just going to talk a little bit about the the Messiah for after Easter, but I think in some ways because I think of like the Hallelujah chorus, but it's like more like a a less cliched, a less overused version of something like the Hallelujah chorus. Yeah, even the full Berlioz Psalm Mass is on YouTube as well. If you want to listen to that, it's about forty five minutes long. And the hymn I had for Easter Sunday was "Thine Be the Glory." Mm-hmm. My tip with any Easter hymn, though, is to make sure you get it at a good clip, sung well at a decent speed, because they are triumphant and they should sound that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I think it's interesting to talk about the Messiah because we hear it a lot at Christmas, but I think it was traditionally for Easter or Holy Week. Um, And it does a beautiful job of going through the entire story of Christ, like starting with the birth of Christ And then reflecting on a lot of the prophecies which give meaning to the death of Christ. And then you go into that, yeah, the great hallelujah chorus and what that means at the end, like the triumph at the end of that. So maybe it's not appropriate for Holy Week because of that combination. But I think it is a great one to listen to and to get the entire sense of the story. Mm -hmm. And the other one I just wanted to mention It's quite a modern um, composition that I was at the premiere of a couple of years ago here in Dublin. And it's called the Westminster Mass. It's just the five different parts of the Mass, like the Gloria and the Agnes Dei. But they're written in a way that's supposed to mimic being in, in a cathedral, which is really, really beautiful. You've got these kind of slightly discordant voices, which my sister was singing in it. So I was told it was really difficult to sing. But when it all came together, it was just a really stunning effect. So if you're looking to maybe enliven any of your other masses, that might be a good place to go. That's so cool. And that, I guess, brings us to Easter Sunday. So that's our <laughs> our recommendations for, for Holy Week. I hope you enjoyed them. I know it's an interesting time for people and and I will certainly be praying for everyone. I'll definitely feel the loss of actually attending liturgy. So this is, I guess, our our little gesture towards trying to 
make sure that we acknowledge the season as as it kind of happens around us, even if we're not actually attending it. And also, yeah, thanks so much for bearing with us. I think me and Phoebe have been kind of knowing, recording this, that our sound is not up to my usual standards. I guess I would have given this particular one a bit more time if the topic hadn't been so time sensitive that we have to record it even if I can't get the sound right. So hopefully I have a bunch of recording that I have to do for other people in the coming weeks. So hopefully by the time we get to our next episode, I'll have it all hammered out. But just, I guess, thanks so much for bearing with us. Please God, we'll be continuing to come to you guys and bring you the podcast as, I guess, some mild diversion during this time of upheaval. But I guess we still have our final question of the podcast. So Phoebe, what have you been enjoying? Two things. I've really been enjoying the time to craft. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a dress for the doll mouse that Maria, who's been on this podcast before, had given me for Christmas. So she now has a lovely pink outfit ready for Easter. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, just getting to pick up some of my home-centered hobbies mm-hmm. a bit more. And another one that I've been re-watching parts of online that we went to a couple of months ago is the Sleeping Beauty Ballet. Mm. That Obviously, we've been talking about a lot of culture and music here, and the music of that is absolutely beautiful. And if you're looking for something that's maybe not another Netflix series, that isn't all of the highbrow music that we've just been talking about, that's still that's a really beautiful place to go. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It's been interesting. I have been enjoying things, but because I'm now home, I'm sort of at the mercy of what everyone else around me wants to watch or those kinds of things. So I guess what I've been enjoying at the moment is spending time with my granny. And we've been watching things like Escape to the Countryside, which if you don't know what that is, it's just, uh, it's a show on the BBC where people look at buying houses in the countryside, but they definitely try to make the whole show as sort of cozy and it's feel good and they usually like do a spotlight on a local craft in that particular area so that that one's quite enjoyable and then me and my dad have been re-watching Cheers I, I think it's kind of funny speaking of Netflix um, quite a few people have been telling me oh you should watch Cheer on Netflix which is I think a new show about cheerleading in, in the United States but instead I've gone for the 1980s sitcom called Cheers uh, if you know it at all you know the theme song and it, it says um, our troubles are all the same you want to be where everyone knows your name and it's really just it's the type of sitcom that's just very cozy and not stressful and just about a group of people who are essentially nice and good people so it's and it's very funny as well there's a lot of great one-liners in it so uh, that's what I've been enjoying essentially spending time with my family watching things that I might otherwise not be watching I don't think I've watched a single thing on Netflix so (laughs) Um, I must be the exception to the rule that proves it but yeah that's what I've been enjoying at the moment and as always please follow us on Instagram risking enchantment podcast I'm on Twitter at seeking Watson I'm also on instagram at the same and please god we'll be coming to you all again soon and hopefully we'll be talking to you in two weeks so goodbye bye this has been risking enchantment music by kevin mcleod you can follow me on instagram and twitter with the handle at seeking watson 
and you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.